0: Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris major In this episode we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail and we're on Chapter 3. Chapter 3. The Noiseless Wing This quiet sail is a noiseless wing to waft me from distraction. A quote by Byron. Legend says that when Ulysses set out for Ithaca, Aeolus presented him with a sack in which all the adverse winds were secured. When we sailed out of Falmouth, no one gave us any wind at all. We simply trickled over the water towards the unpredictable bay of Biscay while Aeolus slept. Our second day out found us still within sight of land, and I remember that we calculated that, at the present rate of progress, it would take us twelve years to sail around the world. However, We caught our first glimpse of ocean life as we lay on deck in the sunshine. A large flatfisher, reported by Don our scientist to be an opah, flopped drunkenly past our stern. A few hundred yards away, a flock of gannets dived with merciless precision on their frantic prey beneath. It always fascinated us to watch these birds at work, so graceful, yet so calculating and deadly. The white, wheeling flight, the sudden headlong dive, the quick folding of wings then a splash, and it was all over. Perhaps it was as well that we had this mild introduction to existence on the sea, for it gave us the opportunity of adjusting ourselves by degrees. I think we could still scarcely believe that we were four of the luckiest mortals on earth, and that what we had longed for so deeply had, at last, come true. At the same time the future held much that was strange and awe-inspiring. We were no hardened explorers but simply four young men vaguely wondering how tired, wet, cold or seasick one could feel. The principal domestic problem was cooking, and since it was by far the most important and exhausting task on board, we took it strictly in rotation, each person spending one day in the galley. This system seemed to work well and we retained it throughout the trip. It was understood that there was not the slightest obligation to help the cook in any way, so that there was not the unpleasant feeling that one was being rather hard on the poor fellow. Your turn would come soon enough. It is difficult for anyone who has not tried it to imagine the difficulties of cooking in a small boat at sea. To begin with, it is the ultimate test of immunity to seasickness. The hardy soul who feels just wonderful in the wind and the spray on deck may feel quite different bending over a hot stove, looking a frying egg in the eye. The fat in the pan surges backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Sometimes, as a ship gives a lurch, the fat climbs over the rim and sizzles on the stovetop. Through the resulting blue smoke, you catch sight of an open tin of beans just before it is flung off the sideboard. You grab at it and are hurled against the bulkhead. Some grease has managed to get onto the floor and you need an extra hand to hold yourself steady. The old stomach is beginning to react, so you pop your head out of the hatch for a breath of air, then down again to watch the fat in the pan, backwards and forwards, left, right, left, right. So it goes on, till at last you can yell, Grub up, come and get it, and you dump the repulsive stuff on the swinging table. Me? Uh, no thanks, don't seem to be very hungry right now. Fortunately, we had none of this unpleasantness for the first few days. I remember awakening on the second morning at sea, I had been sleeping on one of the forecastle berths, and the sounds of Len's cooking aroused me. Content's motion was as soothing as a lullaby, and the sound of the chuckling waters outside the inch-and-a-half planking by my head showed that she was making leisurely progress. Through the circle of the forehatch above the galley streamed the cool morning sunlight. I caught a glimpse of the smooth yellow mast and of the blue sky behind it. The steaming cup of tea by my elbow and the provocative odour of bacon gave a pleasant trend to my thoughts. Here, indeed, was content. We soon realised, however, that we were not making the passage alone. Over our small shortwave radio came news of gales which were playing round the northern coasts of Britain and rapidly moving south. As we entered the bay, the gales had moved towards the English Channel. by the time they were enveloping the northern part of the bay we were halfway across it became a race between ourselves and the weather with the latter slowly gaining and as we struggled on to the south we glanced apprehensively over our shoulders looking at it dispassionately we decided that a gale would be excellent for our education it did not take long for us to stop thinking dispassionately it was on the fifth day that the fringes of the gale overtook us less than a hundred miles from our goal, Vigo, in northwest Spain. By noon, we were hove to under close-reefed main and storm staysail, waiting to see what would develop. Content behaved beautifully. The livid green seas, dappled with foam, surged towards her, clutching at her decks with trailing white fingers and slunk away astern, defeated. It was a scene of vivid, powerful beauty, but Providence While granting me an intense love of the sea, unfortunately failed to provide me with an interior suitable for its enjoyment, and I was usually among the first to make my little offering to the deep. After an hour or two, we began to take heart. The wind, though strong, was fair, and there was always the chance that, by running to the southward, we would escape from the danger area, so we unlashed the helm, trimmed our sails, and bore away for Spain it was exciting sailing, riding down the faces of the waves, squatting ignominiously for a moment in the trough and then bursting forward again. Watches were doubled to lend moral and physical support to the helmsman, and we lurched and yawed into the dusk. We knew that by now we must be approaching the northwest corner of Spain, and we began to worry about our first landfall. Ernest had had little time to study navigation in the turmoil which preceded our departure and had to complete his schooling as we went along. The log for the first day contains the sardonic remark, Ernest took several sights this morning, which should give us a variety of positions from which to choose. But despite this handicap, navigation has been the least of our worries. On this particular occasion, the clearly defined steamer track was a most valuable confirmation of our position. We had been working on the principle that Ernest was to do the celestial navigation and I was to keep the dead reckoning, and both of us agreed that the light of Cap Finisterre should soon appear ahead. On the port bow was the rugged, unlit northern coast of Spain. On the starboard bow, the Atlantic stretched down to Madeira and beyond. In a burst of confidence, we had decided that we should see the light by ten o'clock that night. Ten o'clock, came and found us peering ahead, but we saw nothing, nothing save the blackness of the night and the wildness of the waves. Fifteen minutes crawled by, twenty, then suddenly we saw it, the fleeting gleam of a light. It came and went and came again, the light of Finistere, twenty minutes late in five days. At dawn the wind of the night left us and the sun shone on a sea miraculously calm. Through the morning mists to the eastward, rose the dim, ragged mountains of Spain. It is difficult to determine one's exact position on this Spanish coast, for one mountain looks very much like another, so we held a short meeting in the cockpit to decide where we were. Having fixed our position, we continued down the coast, and the wind, as though approving our decisions, came fair from the north and we sped before it. This was a day made for sailing, and old content picked up our skirts and scampered through the laughing waters. Perhaps a few hours ago, sitting in sodden clothes, wrestling with the helm, we had envied our friends at home, secure in their warm beds. But now, how we pitied them. While they sat amid their chains in stuffy offices or smoky cities, here we were, watching a wild and fascinating coastline spin past us, barely a mile away. Gone were the wet, and the fatigue and the seasickness of the last 24 hours. Out came our choicest foods, and empty stomachs were filled again. In the late afternoon, we saw the barren islands which guard the entrance to Vigo Bay. And in the evening sunshine, as the breeze began to soften for the night, we swung into the peaceful waters. Of all our landfalls, there is none which can compare with the one we made that day. It was our first foreign port and held a magic of its own. After a week at sea, we gazed about us, entranced. Half a mile away on each side, rugged, granite-topped hills rose steeply from the water. White-walled cottages, clinging to the slopes, glowed richly in the evening sun. Patches of cultivation and neat terraces patterned the hillsides and an occasional dusty track led between the growths of vines. On the conical top of a nearby hill was perched the grey stonework of a hermitage. Ahead of us we could see the clustered town of Vigo beneath its hilltop castle. No wonder that there was a jauntiness about us as we trimmed the sheets and returned the waves of passing fishermen. We had set out and had arrived and that was our reward from the beautiful new yacht club built to resemble the superstructure of a ship fluttered a signal of welcome and as soon as we landed we were told to regard the club as our home during our stay. Our eagerness to get ashore that evening was Don's undoing. We had stowed sail, set an anchor light and embarked on an adventure with the four of us rowing ashore in the eight and a half foot boat and that evening there was a little chop on the water. When we reached the basin steps we thankfully climbed out, all except Don. When his turn came, there was the sound of a slight scuffle, followed by a dignified little splash, and Don disappeared beneath the dark waters of the harbour, shore-going suit and all. While an immaculate club steward hovered reverently in the background, we played Don like a fish on the end of the dinghy painter, and succeeded in landing him. A large regatta was being held on the day after our arrival and the crew of content found itself lounging on chairs on the club balcony as guests of honour. The scene before us was vibrant with life and colour. The granite hills across the landlocked bay, the mile of sunlit water and the polka dots of small white sails. Beneath us were the shouting, jostling throngs on the jetties and the brilliant heaps of oranges, grapes and other fruits which swarthy youths and dark-eyed maidens pedalled among the spectators in heavy rowboats. The first part of the regatta passed quickly enough with sailing races for the snipe and star classes and rowing races in four-oared yolas for the teams of young men who had come from all over Spain. The second half was for the fishermen from the surrounding villages and the climax came with the rowing race between four of these villages which lay on Vigo Bay. To the starting line came four sleek black open boats about 35 feet long resembling lightly built ship's lifeboats. Each boat was manned by the 13 toughest young fishermen that its village could produce, and in the sterns a huge steersman stripped to the waist like his crew stood gripping his long steering oar. As the boats lined up one could sense the tension in the crowd, silent now, watching and waiting for the little brass cannon to bark from the balcony. Then, Everything happened at once. The puff of smoke from the gun, the roar from the crowd, and 52 glistening yellow oar blades churned the water. In, out, in, out. The pace was fantastic. Four gleaming black hulls burst forward down the course. Four helmsmen swayed and wrestled with their steering oars. The course was straight, with a buoy at each end to mark the turn, and it was on these turns that the race might be won or lost. As a boat started to swing round its mark, the steersman frantically plied his oar and the rower in the bow leaped to his feet, thrust his blade diagonally into the water ahead of him and braced himself against it to swing the bow round. Down the half-mile course they came again, round the boys, still stem to stem, then back again to start the final run home. As the boats surged away, it was impossible to see who led, when they approached the distant marks the crowd grew suddenly silent again then almost imperceptibly at first one boat started to swing a second before the others pandemonium broke loose among the spectators as the second third and fourth boats followed round their boys the helmsmen waved and shouted at the swinging tanned bodies yelled at the crowd yelled at the judges yelled at themselves Sardine trawlers hooted and whistled at their favourites as they blustered down the sidelines, just able to keep pace with the rowers. The crowd was gesticulating and shouting, matrons and maids cheered and screamed and occasionally a rocket was fired to add to the tumult. And then suddenly, it was all over. The cacophony died to a murmur, the winners were heroes for a day and a night and the losers went to shout and argue with the judges. At the stag dinner, For the visiting yachtsmen and amateur rowers, we sat at long tables and grinned self-consciously at the young Spaniards opposite us. They understood not a word of English, and we scarcely a word of Spanish. Yet, by the time our glasses had been filled and refilled with tasty red wine, we were conversing freely and uproariously in some weird language of our own concoction. It was at that dinner that we made the acquaintance of a favourite Spanish dish, paella. This has rice cooked with olive oil and spices at its base, but contains such a wealth of unexpected delicacies within it that it resembles a treasure trove. In it, one may find different sorts of meat, tomatoes and peas and beans, shellfish, some still with their shells, and shrimps and sardines and other mysterious morsels. One highlight during the past two months on content had been the gradual disappearance of Ernest behind a vast black beard, It came rather as a surprise to us to find that beards are unusual in Spain, and that this particular specimen caused considerable interest. Ernest bore all this with fortitude, until one evening, when we were walking out of the club, a senorita in front of us happened to turn round and catch sight of the beard. The shrill little squeak of terror did it, and the beard came off next day. For two weeks, we lay in the yacht basin by the club, and tried to complete some of the fitting out we had been unable to do before leaving home. We began to unravel the mysteries of our twin squaresail rig, and one morning, watched by the inevitable group of loungers, whose command of the English language went no further than, psst, psst, Johnny, Cigarillo, we sent our yards aloft. The following day, to the further bewilderment of the populace, we hoisted our squaresails for the first time, And watched them hanging listlessly in the still air of the basin, but in our mind's eye we saw them arched and straining in the Atlantic trades. The people of Vigo are largely monarchists in their sympathies, though they did not seem to think that the time was then ripe for the reinstatement of a king. Their chief terrors were communism and another civil war, and though they might not completely approve of Franco, they preferred him to chaos. Spain, is not lacking in natural resources and her soil is fertile, but the gay charm of her people seems to carry with it an indolence that has hindered the development of the country. It seemed to us that the most valuable gift which could be bestowed on Spain would be a shipload of energy tablets. We were constantly amazed at the number of idlers who found time to lounge on the quays and watch us at work on content. The pavement cafes usually seemed to be crowded with people, sipping glasses of coffee and barber's shops were always a popular meeting place. The remainder of the population seemed to be fairly evenly divided between those who were having their shoes blackened and those who were blacking them. Whether Spain is or is not a police state, I do not know. Certainly, we had no trouble with officialdom, and the formalities were far fewer than those in British or American ports. The food situation was difficult, theoretically the poorer people were granted extra rations at reduced cost, but in practice rationing seemed to be by money. Apart from the ordinary stores, there was the legitimate free market at which those who could pay the price were able to obtain anything they wished. We began to appreciate the rationing system at home, irksome as it had seemed at the time. The Spaniard does not, of course, take kindly to rules and regulations. The evasion of which is a national pastime as one person put it to us there are only a dozen men in the government making the laws and 25 million people trying to break them so what chance has the government from our observation none whatsoever vigo depends mainly on its fishing for trade but like the rest of spain is largely agricultural like the rest of spain too it is a place of sharp contrasts of very rich people And very poor, of industry and indolence, laughter and tears. A land in which the streets swarmed with officials in ill fitting grey uniforms, yet in which no one bothered to look at our passports. Our friend Gerardo was a welcome source of information on local conditions. Gerardo, with his lean face, high bridged nose, and dark wavy hair, was a student and used to visit us on board content to practice his English, and to teach us Spanish. I doubt if Gerardo ever quite knew what to make of us, and I shall never forget his expression when we played a Spike Jones record for him and told him, during the melodious opening bars, that it was the choir of St Paul's Cathedral. He did, however, develop a wonderful trait. He became passionately fond of polishing brass. In recognition of this most valuable service on board, we christened him Manuel Labour. As far as we could gather from Garrado, the amorous young Spaniard of gentle birth had to display great tenacity and daring in the pursuit of his senorita. It seemed that before he could hope to win his lady, he had the much more formidable task of wooing her parents. When he made a date with a new girlfriend, she was accompanied for the first few times by Mama and Papa. Certainly, at one dance which we saw, most of the maidens seemed to be surrounded by a posse of dark-browed dowagers well-entrenched in defensive positions. Near our berth in the yacht basin was a large cafe where patrons could sit beneath squat palm trees, sipping their wine in the evening and listening to a vivacious young lady singing the songs of Spain. From our bunks, far into the night, we could hear her expressive, attractive voice punctuated by the rhythm of the castanets, and we affectionately named her Moaning Minnie. Sometimes we still hum some of her tunes, On our last evening in Vigo, we were sitting at a small table, enjoying the music and white wine at 30 cents a bottle, and were about to leave when the waiter began solemnly refilling our glasses. Well, there must be some mistake, we told him, in our halting Spanish. We ordered no more wine. For answer, he inclined his head towards a nearby table. The señor told me to fill your glasses. We turned to the table in question, but it was deserted. Only an empty brandy glass remained. The situation seemed a trifle melodramatic, and we were just about to launch into the wearisome business of extracting an explanation in Spanish when a tall, elegant young man returned to the empty chair. It turned out that he was a Spaniard who had lived in America for several years, and hearing our English voices, had wished to meet us. The party, which resulted from this chance meeting with Fito, was a poor preparation for our departure next morning, and we felt even less like sailors than usual when we crawled out on deck and prepared to get underway. As we motored down the windless harbour, past the yacht club, a signal of thanks fluttered from our cross trees, and on the club balcony we could see the waving of white towels as the waiter's bade us, adios. As we left the bay, we sadly glanced back at our first point of contact with this carefree, volatile enigma which is modern Spain. Well, that's the end of the first chapter and before we go on to the second chapter i just wanted to share with you the fact that it's a great pleasure to me to be able to share these somewhat unusual unique and rare nautical books with you and it's only made possible by the kind donation by bruce hassey of his late father rudolph's nautical library i know that when Bruce made the offer to me of whether I could take it over and store the books. He had no idea that I might do this with them and share them with so many people. But I hope that it's a fitting memorial to the decades that Rudy spent bringing these books together. And I want to thank the Hasse family for the great trust they placed in me by making me custodian of this incredible library. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, you're getting something from these stories. Please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. Or following the link in the podcast description and there you'll find a link to be able to donate five dollars a month to the podcast that's little more than the cost of a cup of coffee at starbucks and that money added together from all the different people from all around the world that are listening to the podcast makes it possible for me to spend approximately 20 hours per week reading the books and editing the shows ready for the podcast now i really appreciate any donations that you're able to make but if at the moment economic realities mean that it's not possible for you to share money in that way, don't worry about it. I think Rudy and myself will be most happy just to know that people are hearing the stories, learning from the mistakes and the triumphs of forgotten navigators, and enjoying a rip-roaring sailing story. Let's get on with the next chapter. Chapter 4. As a Cradled Child There the sea I found, calm as a cradled child in dreamless slumber bound. A quote by Shelley. Outside Vigo Harbor, it was as calm as it had been inside. When darkness came, we were little farther on our way and saw the fitful gleam of Cabo Calero lighthouse and the moving lights of fishing boats making home to Vigo. A crystal moon swung into the sky so bright that by its light, I wrote a letter in the cockpit. The following day, Brought what was to be typical weather, a calm sea, a hazy windless horizon, and hot sun. Day followed day, and still no wind came. Our objective was Lisbon, the capital of Portugal, 240 miles down the coast, and, thinking that each day of calm must be the last, we stubbornly refused to start the motor. There are few more exasperating experiences than lying becalmed in a thick fog at sea, and now on the fourth day out we felt its dankness about us. There was little we could do at night but lower sail and keep watch, for there was seldom sufficient wind for progress. Once we heard the worried note of a ship's siren, the throb of powerful engines, the thrashing of a propeller, and the churning of a bow wave. Through the fog, We could see nothing as we pumped madly at our wheezy little foghorn, but the menace passed on into the darkness, leaving us rolling gently. While we are lying, thus becalmed, about 20 miles off the Spanish and Portuguese coasts, let's leave progress in the hands of the slight current which is carrying us southward towards Lisbon, and go below to glance at Content's accommodation. Content was built at Falmouth in 1914, so she has already lived a full life. Designed as a sturdy cruiser for a well-known yachtsman of the times, she makes no great claim to speed, but she has a grace about her robustness which captivated us from the start. Though 34 years old when we bought her, the oak frames and pitch pine planking were sounder than those of many a modern sister. Right in the bows of the boat we find the bosun's locker, in which we keep most of our paint and smaller oddments and a messy hole it usually is, but difficult to use for anything else. From this locker stretches the forecastle with its two pipe-cot berths on one side and sideboard on the other. At first, Ernest and Don occupied these berths, but the forward end of a boat is an uncomfortable place in bad weather and now they are no longer used for sleeping. Gradually, an assortment of junk has crept into them as jungle creeps over an abandoned village. The galley is theoretically separated from the forecastle by a sliding curtain, but in practice it forms one space. The galley must have seen more tears and profanity than any other part of the ship, though in its colour scheme of pale and dark blues, it looks innocent enough. The sink and draining board of light blue plastic, excellent for a small boat, and the stove is a two-burner kerosene type with a portable oven. A dresser opposite houses our extraordinarily motley array of crockery and has cupboards below it. A portable oven is well worth having though it took us a little time to become tuned to its idiosyncrasies. Baking pies and tarts in a rough sea requires a great deal of patience and care. Sooner or later the rolling of the boat squirts the liquid in the pie into the bottom and sides of the oven with devastating results. Of course the oven should be carefully cleaned out after use, but this is just the sort of thing which is seldom done at sea. As a result, when one optimistically opens the oven door after preheating, one is repelled by a billowing cloud of black smoke from the burning remnants. When the smoke becomes so bad that the pastry is discolored, we know that the oven is due for decarbonizing. Ducking our heads slightly, we can step into the saloon, which, though only seven feet long and 10 feet wide, fulfills the function of living and dining rooms. Perhaps the most distinctive feature is the conglomeration of books, nearly 300 of them, which occupy four full-length shelves. These books are the combination of our individual collections and range in subject from cruising to cookery and from pilot books to poetry. Those which deal with the small boat voyages of others are our special friends and constant sources of information and sometimes the cabin seems to glow with the personalities of these friendly voyagers, of Slocum, Gerbolt and Tams, Robinson, Milch, Knight and Dubati. The only thing we need now is the leisure to read all these, for so far we have not found it. Beneath the cabin sole are fresh water tanks and above it is our swinging table. This has been invaluable for it leans gently with the ship when unpecked and bottles or glasses will stand on it in the roughest weather. It does, however, take a little practice to eat soup from a bowl, which may be tapping one's kneecaps at one moment and supporting one's chin the next. The main hatch and its ladder occupy what we dare to call the lobby above the saloon, and with a lavatory on one side and a clothes-hanging space on the other. Going aft again, we enter the sleeping cabin and find two built-up bunks looking surprisingly civilised with their varnished sides and brass-handled drawers. Where a wash cabinet once proudly stood, we have built a partially folding table with a shelf for navigation books above it, and instrument cupboard below. Beside it stands the drawer for ship's papers, and the first aid cabinet, well stocked but, fortunately, seldom used. A this cabin is a slum area, the home of our heavy-duty Kelvin kerosene motor, This machine starts on gas and switches over to kerosene and since we have become accustomed to it performs remarkably well for its 34 years. It is seldom now that we have trouble in starting it but though originally 25 horsepower some of those horses must have long ago been put out to pasture. A little Stuart Turner generating set, almost equally ancient but extremely reliable, charges our 12 volt batteries for our electric lights and small radio receiving set tools are stored in the engine room where they fight a losing battle for living space with a rabble of bits and pieces of mechanical parts fragments of wire scraps of timber oil cans cotton waste shirts which have been relegated to engine rags and engine rags promoted to shirts and the host of things which may come in useful some day. beyond this engine room is a large space in which our sails are stowed or more accurately dumped. Such is our home, a few feet smaller than we would have wished to house the accumulated belongings of four young men, but adequate nevertheless, and in every corner and round our bunks we have put shelves to accommodate the multitude of old clothing we wear on board when we have to wear anything at all. Meanwhile, we have been making slow progress southward. Occasionally a spell of breeze for a few hours would raise our hopes, but never for long. We have often found that rolling in a flat calm can do far more damage to a boat than a strong steady wind, and during this spell we broke our cross trees and tore our precious reaching stasel, the only light weather sail, aboard. We effected a temporary repair of the cross trees with a lashing which, as is so often the case with a temporary repair, lasted across the Atlantic. By now we had been at sea for more than a week and were glad of the company of the gaudily painted fishing boats which work these waters. One small boat with a large eye painted on its bow and a most piratical looking captain draped over its bulwarks hailed us and asked us where we were bound, for at the time we were heading out from the coast. Lisboa, we replied in our best Portuguese, it was the only word we knew, at which they excitedly waved their arms in a general southerly direction and then asked for tobacco in return for this startling information. The calm dawn of the tenth day out of Vigo saw us able, at last, to stand in towards the river Tagus, on which Lisbon lies. But it was already dark when we approached the entrance itself. The final hours of that passage were a strange contrast to what had gone before. All day the breeze freshened, and as the lights of the Tagus grew nearer, with the glow from Lisbon behind them, rain began to fall and solemn dark clouds climbed from the horizon onto the shoulders of the wind, and gradually blotted out the stars. The channel into the estuary runs between surf-covered sandbanks, and as we ran along the coast, we began to search for the two little red lights which, when in line, would guide us in. We could see no sign of them. Bearings of other shore lights indicated that we were at the entrance to the channel. Vigo had been a beautiful and rather romantic landfall. Lisbon showed us that it was not always like that. I remember sitting in the lurching saloon rechecking our position with a chart on the swinging table and a bucket between my knees. What were we to do? On the one hand, the chart clearly showed that our two red lights would show up when we reached the narrow safe channel. On the other, every bearing we took checked our position at the entrance to that channel. We decided to trust our navigation and run in for the shore. Every minute the night was growing wilder the rain came streaming down, and to add a touch of melodrama, lightning flashed and lit the following seas. We sat huddled in the cockpit, eyes and ears straining, nerves on tiptoe, watching and listening for the tumbling breakers on those deadly banks close by. Then, suddenly, a tiny red light appeared ahead, and another, directly in line. We were safely in the channel. The trouble had been caused by a severe rain squall which had obliterated the guiding lights at the crucial moment. Within a few minutes, we were being bundled through the entrance to the smooth dark waters beyond. It was too dark to see the low, unlit shore near which we would anchor for the night, but we had plotted its position on the chart, and, sailing blindfold on a succession of bearings of the entrance lights, we reached the appointed spot, stowed sail, and scuttled below out of the rain to the supreme luxury of a hot drink and a dry bunk at 3 a.m., It was Ernest's birthday. We awoke to find the Tagus estuary blue and gold in the sunshine of a perfect day, with the terraced green of the flanking hills. A few miles up the opposite shore were the spires and domes of Lisbon, looking as inviting as a city can look, only from the sea. We had just made sail, and were rippling over the sandy bottom, when we saw coming through the entrance a small yawl with a familiar cut to its jib. She was the good ship Temptress, with Edward Alcard aboard. He had left England within a day of us, and here we were together in Lisbon. The two old boats circled patiently round each other, while their crews, four in our case but only one on Temptress, swapped yarns and then bore away upriver, though Temptress was to leave for Gibraltar almost immediately. A small boat, loaded with a Portuguese family, came close under Alcard's bow. His answer to our shouted warning was a typical remark. "'Oh, that,' he said, glancing nonchalantly over his bowsprit, "'I just crush those and use them as ashtrays.' While we were sailing in leisurely fashion past the port itself, we saw a small black schooner under the British flag. This called for investigation, and so it was that we met two very charming people, Mr. and Mrs. Mitchell, the British vice Council and his wife.' From that moment, Mr Mitchell took charge of us and directed us to a suitable anchorage while he negotiated a berth for us in the Yacht Club Basin at Belém, where we lay in comfort during the two weeks we were in the country. Among the Portuguese, Britain's oldest allies, we found nothing but friendliness except perhaps for some rather officious police department members who insisted on keeping our passports until we were due to leave. Though superficially resembling Spain, Portugal is probably poorer in natural resources, but its more industrious population has succeeded in improving the standard of living of the country, a process which was helped by neutrality during the war. As in all agricultural countries, however, there is considerable poverty among a large section of the community brought to mind by little things such as the law imposing a fine on anyone not wearing shoes in the streets of Lisbon, wine is of course one of the major exports and there are deposits of minerals in the interior the greatest obstacle to industrialization is the shortage of electrical power and though a great program of dam building is underway it is not expected materially to alter the situation before 1958 lisbon itself built on seven hills as rome was is charming and beautiful with its magnificent avenida liberdade its bustling pavement cafes, and mosaic sidewalks. It has, of course, acquired a storybook reputation as the romantic incubator of many an international plot and shady intrigue during the war, and, however exaggerated this reputation may be, we spoke to at least one gentleman whose trim yacht had slipped down the darkened Tagus with a cargo of fallen Allied airmen for a waiting merchant ship. No sooner were we safely in the yacht basin than Mr Mitchell insisted that we take his 26-foot shallow draft schooner and his paid hand, Barlovento, to explore for a day and a half some of the lazy creeks and exotic little villages higher up the river. Barlovento, whom we always called Winwood, a free translation of his name, was a jovial shipmate. He was more Scandinavian than Portuguese, in appearance with his blonde hair and lean, handsome young face, and was a born sailor. Though he had a wife and baby to whom he was devoted, Winwood had a yawing eye and fell an easy prey to the flashing eyes of a pretty girl. He also had a fund of stories which he used to tell in his mutilated but graphic brand of pigeon English. His description of shooting a bird on the wing and of its falling to earth was typical. Winwood squinted along the barrel of an imaginary shotgun, then suddenly exclaimed, Bang, bang! He no go! He come! One of Winwood's female admirers owned a small wine shop and he would come aboard with a half-gallon flagon of local red wine for us. This stuff was extremely cheap and we soon developed a liking for it. We found it best taken in the form of sangria by diluting it to twice its volume with water and adding sugar. This is the form in which it is usually drunk by the women. We had scarcely arrived back from this expedition upriver when it was decided that we should go on another this time with our host and hostess, and we were fortunate enough to arrive at the small neighbouring town of Villafranca during the annual three-day bullfighting fiesta. The town lies in the centre of Portugal's most famous bull-breeding country, and people come from Lisbon itself and from miles around to enjoy the fiesta. Gaily decorated barges were clustered along the riverbank beside the gardens with their red painted benches, ferryboats, "'poured their crowds ashore to swell the throngs "'in the wine shops and eating houses. "'The brilliant sunshine glistened on the tawny waters of the Tagus "'and glared alike on the gaudy bunting which fringed the bullfighting arena, "'on the striped carnival tents beside it "'and on the white walls of the buildings. "'The rickety wayside stalls hung up their bunches of bananas, "'stacked their rolls and sweet cakes "'and cooked revolting-looking pieces of dried squid. "'In the morning,' we were able to watch a spectacle almost unique in the world, the baiting of the bulls in the dusty little main street of the town. The scene is one of gaiety and excitement. All the side roads are barricaded, and in the avenue thus formed, there is a glorious surging melee of men and beasts. While the señoritas and señoras watch from gay balconies above, the more venturesome of the young men creep into the street while the crowd shouts and waves at the two glossy black bulls. Then, suddenly... One of the animals wheels and charges headlong at one of the crowded barricades. Back surges the crowd behind the fencing, fighting and pushing to get as far as possible from those lowered horns. Patchwork knots of men scatter in the street like pebbles from a shovel. No time for gallantry now. The other bull has gone hurtling down the street and every man is for himself, punching and elbowing his way into one of the doorways before the lowered head comes scything down the sidewalk. The animals... Go careening around the corner, and there is silence again, but only for a minute. Toro, toro, yells the crowd. Toro, toro, echoes the loudspeaker. Toro shriek the senoritas from their balconies. Round the corner thunder the bulls, nostrils dilated, tails streaming stiffly behind, and once again there is the mad scramble for doorways and window sills and even lamp posts. Somebody stumbles and falls in front of one of the bulls. But before the animal has time to do more than nuzzle him the unfortunate individual is on his feet running for his life to dive under one of the barricades we four from content anxious to miss nothing soon found ourselves in the hurly-burly running as fast as any and then following in the wake of the onslaught len earned some applause from the balconies for an unplanned feat of daring intent on taking a close shot of an advancing bull he knelt with camera pressed to his eye oblivious of the fact that the street had cleared about him. It was only when he looked up with horror to see the bull almost upon him that he realised that the viewfinder of his camera was a diminishing one. I do not think I have ever seen Len move quite so rapidly as he did that time. After all, there is nothing like a ton of prime beef close behind one to discourage loitering. Spectacular event of the morning was the sudden rush of an infuriated Toro to bust open the door of a barber's shop. An unfortunate, corpulent gentleman was leaning back in the chair enjoying a shave and wishing no harm to anyone when he was peremptorily whisked from his perch and hurled across the room. The bull sauntered out again through the battered doorway with a lick of shaving cream on his snout and the gentleman was escorted to the hospital. This year had apparently been a mild one for there were no deaths and this was the only serious injury. By now the heat of the day was becoming oppressive and the animals, tiring of the game, ignored the taunts of the spectators. Down the street on horseback came two colourful attendants called campinos. Dressed on ceremonial occasions in green stocking hat, white shirt and green vest and breeches, they managed the bulls with the help of a herd of trained bullocks called cabrestos. These cabrestos, usually six or eight of them, led by a specially trained master cabresto, have bells dangling from their necks and trot round the bull who is then quite content to be heard along with them. The Portuguese bullfights which were held in the evenings differ from those of Spain principally in their humanity. Neither bulls nor horses are killed. Indeed the former suffer no more than the aggravation of a few light darts in the hide round their shoulders while the torios who face them run considerable risk. These torios are divided into four groups. The stars are the Cavaleros who, with their three-cornered hats and richly ornate coats, vests and breeches, enter the ring individually on superbly trained horses. Their task is to stick three darts into the bull's neck from horseback. The performance, with its breathtaking swerving, wheeling and rearing, being one of supreme horsemanship rather than personal bravery. In order to safeguard the horses, the horns are fitted with small leather caps and it is wonderful to watch these mounts quite unafraid answering the slightest touch of their masters to gallop out of harm's way with a few inches to spare each cavalero has a small group of attendants called bandoleros who stand by with large capes to excite the bull if necessary or distract him should there be a mishap perhaps the most familiar figure in the bull ring is the espada with his scarlet cloak laid over a thin bladed sword as he swirls his cape and sidesteps the rush of the bull, there is the delicate poise and graceful pirouette of a ballet dancer, death passing an inch from his body. One of the espadas that night was a tall blond Spaniard who made little attempt to hide his disdain for this tame form of fighting in which there was no death for the bull. Even in Spain, however, the fight is not the sadistic blood spectacle it may appear to the casual observer. Every movement is carefully calculated, and only when the man is completely master of the beast may he slay it. Every dart thrust into the neck is aimed at a particular muscle, the severing of which causes the bull's head gradually to sag, opening the way for the quick, clean coup de gras delivered through the shoulder. In Portugal, the symbolic killing of the bull is performed by a group of about eight men called focados, who enter the ring in single file, dressed in white shirts and breeches and green vests, while the bandolero, attracts the bull's attention with a cape then the cape withdraws from the ring and the bull turns to face the file of motionless men down goes his head and he charges to us that was the most tense moment of the show a massive black beast charging headlong at eight weaponless men suddenly things happened so quickly that it was difficult to disentangle them when a few feet separated the bull from the leading man, the focado leaped into the air and landed on the bull's head with his stomach between the horns and arms clasped tightly round the bull's neck. The second focado jumped a fraction of a second later and landed on top of the first, their combined weight lowering the bull's head. The other men rushed to their appointed position, grabbed legs and a tail and a combined tackle, and within a few yards the animal was powerless on the ground. He was then suddenly released and herded down to the ring by a group of cabrestos. After a few minutes' pause, the doors swung open and the next bull came galloping into the arena. Before we returned to our anchorage in the yacht basin, we were able to look closely at the sailing barges which carry cargoes up and down the Tagus. They are beamy and shallow with brightly decorated upswept bows, and even their cargo holds are often painted, with complicated floral designs or religious scenes. The masts are picked out in a spiral pattern the colouring of which often indicates the line of owners to which they belong. They carry a tall, narrow-headed gaff mainsail and a single headsail, in most cases, under which rig their hulls seem to defy all the laws of hydrodynamics by going to windward. Farther up the river, we saw the small, high-powered canoes, said to be of Phoenician origin, in which the water gypsies tend their conical fish traps. These gypsies live in huts built on stakes among the tall rushes on the river banks, and obtain what livelihood they can, from the eels and shad, or tagus salmon, which they trap in the river. The most graceful ships we saw in Portugal, perhaps anywhere, were the three and four-masted schooners and barkantines which crossed the Atlantic every spring to fish on the Newfoundland banks, returning to the tagus in the fall. One morning we were fortunate enough to see one of these ships sailing slowly up the estuary, most of her sails already furled and her crew dotted along the bowsprit, as though they could not wait to reach land after so many months at sea. Though there was much of Lisbon we had not seen, we decided that it was time for us to leave, and as Windward watched us sadly from the quay, we slid out to the basin on our way to Cadiz in southern Spain. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to spartanoceanracing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage if you can't get out on the water you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts you'll find blogs you'll find gear reviews and also the spartan online seamanship training syllabus which we've been working on now for over a year this means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video very nitty-gritty very in detail looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, The last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube, forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea, moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories, connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, Whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound, and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers.